Eve next to him to complete man. They were one union. They were together. They were perfect as God intended it to be. And we know the part in Genesis chapter number 3 where she takes the forbidden fruit that she wasn't supposed to touch and disobeys God's command and gives also to her husband. And, and we've heard Romans 5.12 that tell us that because of that one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We, we, we know that, correct? But one thing I think we miss in the fall of man's story is perhaps the saddest part. It's the part where God finds out about their sin. The Bible puts it this way in Genesis chapter number 3. He says, God went for a walk in the cool of the day. He goes for a walk in the cool of the day. And you know what the first words out of his mouth are? Adam, where art thou? You know what that tells me? That tells me this was something God did every day with Adam. That God and Adam went on these walks every day. That Adam literally walked with God. That he talked to him. He had a relationship with with him. Adam had a question. He could go straight to God. Adam had a need. He could bring it straight to God. He walked with God. Him, and yet you know what happens. Adam and Eve are hiding with fig leaves covering their sin, and God, he, he, he confronts their sin, and sadly, at the end of the chapter, he casts them out of his presence. He separates them from him, and he puts two angels in front of the garden to guard it. You know why he did that? Because Adam and Eve would come back. They would try to get back in. They would try to get back their fellowship with God. But it could not be done. It was broken. And since that moment, nothing on this earth has been the way it was supposed to be. Since that moment, I mean, if you've ever had a hunch something's wrong with our world, Genesis chapter number 3 confirms it. Our world has been broken ever since The biggest man-made thing we have in our world is a giant dump that we throw all the junk we don't want. Our world is messed up. It's not how it was supposed to be. But the end of Genesis 3 leaves us not without hope. For he says right there to the serpent, he says, look, the seed of the woman, you're going to bruise its hill, but he's going to bruise your, he's going to crush your head. And right there in that moment, Jesus put forth his redemption plan that one day Jesus would step out of heaven and into this world and he would live 33 and a half years of perfection and he would go to a cross willingly to shed his blood on the cross to save us from our sin to to reunite us in a relationship with God and look the salvation that you experience the salvation that you call upon the Lord for is not just something that gives you eternal life one day no 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 it gives you life right now today look God did not just die on that cross so that you could live with him one day eternally No, he died on that cross so that you could live with him every day presently. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to talk with him. 
He wants you to call Him by His name. And He wants to call you by your name. He, he, he wants to get to know you. And He wants you to get to know Him. And I'm telling you, that's revival. True fellowship with God. Getting it back to the way it used to be. And that only happens when we get into this book. Because the living word of God is revealed to us through the written word of God. And as you grow closer with that book in your lap, you are not growing more familiar with an old storytelling book. You're not, you're not growing familiar with an ancient book of history. No, you are growing familiar with the very lines on the face of your God. And I tell you, that's revival. And sadly, for your generation, and for the one that I'm living in, I'm afraid it's impossible. You don't believe me? Let me prove it to you tonight from Luke chapter 14. I believe, first of all, revival is impossible this evening because we are not consecrated to Christ. We are not consecrated to Christ. Let me just give you a brief background on Luke chapter number 14. Jesus is kind of sick of the spectators at this point. Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle. He's been healing the, 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 the blind. He's been feeding the 5,000. And at this point, Luke chapter number 14, a large gathering has gathered one more time. And I find it interesting that Jesus was never interested in the size of the crowd. In fact, most of the times that Jesus had his largest audience, he said something almost instantly that drove most of them away. And Jesus is back at it, man. I mean, I tell you, the disciples had to have just been like knocking their heads against the wall, right? Because every time it looked like things were going to get easier, Jesus made it ten times harder for them. And it's no different in this story, because Jesus is not interested in the size of the crowd. He's interested in their level of commitment to him. He's interested in how close they are to him, to their fellowship with Christ. That's what he's concerned about. And so as, he come, as this crowd gathers, in verse number 25, it says that there went out great multitudes with him, and he turned, Jesus turned and said unto them, look what he says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sister and, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay. You're saying, the only one that's true about me is I hate my sister. That one I can get behind. Like, what? What is this talking about? Like, I'll tell you this. Jesus must be the preeminent relationship in your life. He must be the preeminent relationship in your life. Now, the world defines the word hate as um, to dislike something intensely or to... Um, to uh, vehemently uh, work against them, right? To hate them with an intense desire, right? Obviously, that's not the biblical word for hate. That can't be what Jesus is saying here because that goes contrary to every single one of, of Jesus' other teachings. In fact, it goes contrary to the message, the entire message of Tuesday night, that we need to forgive others. Okay, so 
This word here, hate, Jesus is using it to, to really get them to, to, to ask themselves, who do I love? In fact, I know um, some people will translate this, uh, this word hate, and they'll say uh, by comparison, that it is a Jesus wants you to love him more. Okay, But I don't think this is just Jesus. your love for me to be so intense that it looks like from the outside world that you don't have time for them because you're walking with me okay in other words jesus is not saying i want to be one of your top 10 he's not saying i want to be he's not saying i want to be one of many people that you love He's not saying I want to be many, he's not saying I want to be one of many gods in your life. He's not even saying I want to be first of many gods in your life. No, he's saying I want to be the one and only God in your life. Everything else has to take a back seat. Everything else has to take a back seat. Look, if Jesus is not the one and only God in your life, you mark it down, he's not satisfied with your life. He's not satisfied with it. Um, December 30th, 2014, Cannon Beach, Oregon. I got down on one knee overlooking the beautiful sunset on the Oregon coast. And I pulled out an engagement ring. And on one knee, I asked Lexa if she would marry me. It was pretty cool. She said no. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she said yes. But just, just, just hypothetically, I did not do this, but just hypothetically tonight, think with me. If I would have gotten on my knee that night and said, Lexa, I love you. You're the most important person in my life. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And Lexa, I pull out that ring. I said, Alexa, will you marry me? And as she goes to say, I say, wait a second. Before you say yes, there's a couple of things you need to know. You are going to be number one in my life. But I should let you know about a girl named Bertha. She's number two. And Bertha gets a lot of my time. She gets a lot of my attention as well. But don't worry, you're number one. You come first. Don't worry. But Bertha... She's number two. And while we're at it, there's a Betty, and Betty's number three. And Be- Betty's a nice girl. Betty, Betty, you know, she's got, she, she makes me laugh, and I enjoy her company. And so, uh, you know, uh, but, but you're number one, and, you know, and then, and then um, Bertha's number two, and Betty's number three, and, and, and Janice. Janice is number four. Yeah, she's number four. I, I, I spend some time with her, too. 
normally every other Friday, and we kind of go out on a date and, and have some fun together. And, and, but, but don't worry, don't worry. You are number one. It even comes with this foam finger, and, uh, you know, you're number one. You're number one. How many of you think Lexa would have said, that sounds like a great deal? Wow. I get to be number one? Wow. Yes. I will absolutely take that deal. I mean, uh, amen. Give me the ring and the foam finger. Let me go tell my parents. You say, no, Eric, you would have been slapped in the face. Look, Lexa does not want to be one of many women in my life. Lexa wants to be the one and only woman in my life. And rightfully so. And I tell you, God does not want to be one of many gods in your life. But that's how you treat him. Uh, yeah, God, um, I love you. <laughs> I love you. I really do. But man, I love sports too. I love sports. And, and yeah, God, I love you. Man, God, you are awesome. But, but man, I love that money. And when it comes down to it, I'm going to do whatever I can to stack that bank account in my favor. But God, you're number one. Man, I'm going to go to church on Sundays. Sometime, unless I have a, you know, a sports game. And God, God, yeah, I, I love you. I really do. But, but in this instance, uh, I got to do something else over here. Over here. Look, God does not want an open relationship with you. He wants to be exclusive. He wants you. All of You. He wants all of your time. He wants all of your attention. He wants every single ounce of you. Love the Lord thy God with your whole heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your might. Love the Lord your God with all your heart heart. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understandings, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Look, all means all, and that's all all means. He wants it all. And Jesus is going to use some examples here of what he wants to be all of, what he wants to be the one and only of in your life. First of all, he wants to be your one and only authority. He says, if you're going to come to me, you've got to hate your mom and your dad. The mother and father were the ultimate um, examples of authority in Jewish culture. Even when people would be much, 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 much out of the home, the, the, um, the deferral would still be to the mom and dad. As far as what mom and dad wanted, that's what they were going to do. And while the Bible clearly teaches children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, the Bible clearly wants you to, to obey your parents. The Bible clearly wants you to love your parents. The Bible clearly wants you to respect and honor your parents. But the Bible also teaches here that the Lord is to be preeminent in your life. And that when push comes to shove, you're going to do what God wants you to do more than you're going to do what, do what your parents want you to do. I can't tell you how many people I've met, how many young people I've met over the years that are afraid to do what God's will is for their life because mom and dad are scared about it. 
And, and they're afraid to, 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 to be a missionary. That, and they, they have a burden for a, for, 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 for a third world country, country. But mom and dad are worried if, if the, you know, the finances will be there to protect them. Look, Adoniram Judson wrote a letter to his future wife's father. And he told her that he loved his daughter. And he was asking for her hand in marriage. And you know what he wrote in the letter? He said, if you agree to let your daughter marry me, I want to let you know you'll never see her again. She may die on this mission field. We're going over to witness to a third world country where nobody knows the gospel, where there's headhunters, where there's people who will kill us if we even speak the name of Christ. And he's saying, and knowing this, will you give your daughter to a higher call than what's on this earth? And Adoniram Judson's wife's father said, yes. And Adoniram Judson was right. She never saw her parents again. She died on the mission field. And all that to say, Adoniram Judson in that time period hadn't led one soul to Christ. That's someone who says, you know what? God's my authority. Not the world's. Not, not uh, the education system I have. My authority, my allegiance belongs to God. He wants to be your one and only authority, but he also wants to be your one and only attachment. He says you've got to hate your mom and your dad, and then he goes on to say, and wife and children and brethren and sisters. And here he's talking about this blood that's a little bit thicker than blood. you know what I mean? This is the type of relationships that's like, no one talks about my sister but me, right? This is uh, the, the, not, the not just, we're just, we're not just friends, we're family type of bond. This, th- these affections in our life. And he says, look, when you come to me, if you're going to follow me, if you're truly going to be my disciple, if you're truly going to have a relationship with me and fellowship with me, these other things that you love and, and are attached to, you've got you to detach from the world and you've got to attach to me. You gotta let go of these things that, that you hold on to, that identify you, that, that keep you safe and secure, and you're gonna have to step out and follow me. He says, you gotta, I wanna be your one and only authority. I wanna be your one and only af- uh, uh, attachment. And then he says, I wanna be your one and only affection. He says, and yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You know, there's one person in this room you love more than anybody else, and it's you. We are very good at, at taking care of number one. Oh, man. In fact, so oftentimes, we're so looking out for number one that we end up stepping in number two. That was a joke. No, we don't thought it was funny, but that's right. <laughs> but we love ourselves, don't we? Oh, man. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, I would say the majority of you in this room, if not all of you in this room, are going to do what you want to do. At the end of this day, if push comes to shove, you're going to get what you want more than anybody else. You might be a good person. You might be kind. But at the end of the day, you're going to stick out for yourself more than anybody else. Why? Because we protect ourselves. We love ourselves. Look, there's nothing wrong with that except when it comes in the way of what God wants for your life. And so many of you will not serve God and will not have a relationship with God because the minute God asks you to do something you don't want to do, you'll turn your back and walk away. 
In fact, many of you have not gotten saved this week, not because you don't know you need to, but because you're scared to know that if I do, things are going to have to change in my life. I'm going to have to stop listening to some things that I like to listen to, and I'm probably going to have to stop watching some things that I like to watch. And once I have the Holy Spirit, he's going to convict me about some things in my life, and I don't know if I want to go down that road. So you'd rather sit in your seat and die and go to hell than change you? Come on. We are so rooted in the love for ourselves that we are willing to watch thousands upon thousands of people die and go to hell while we make more money and make our lives more comfortable. And God says, look, you're going to come to me. You're going to you're gonna have fellowship with me. You're going to have to put yourself on the cross and put me guiding and directing your life. Because I want soul ownership of your heart. I want to sit on the throne of your heart. We don't like to do that today, do we? No, we don't like to put a throne on our heart. We like to put a couch on our heart. And we like to give God at most a cushion. He's up there with the rest of our dreams, the rest of our desires. And we like God to share space in our lives. And God says, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. He says, I am a jealous God. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My praise will I not give to another. Neither my, or my, my glory will I not give to another. Neither pray, neither my praise to any graven image. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And I ain't sharing you. I'm not sharing you. I don't, I, I, I don't take second place. I don't take third place. I don't even take first place. I'm the only one in the race, or I ain't participating. In fact, so much so that he told the writer in Ezekiel to tell the nation of Israel that he was broken for their whorish hearts which did, and their eyes, which did go a-whoring after idols. He, be, he, he portrays himself as a betrayed lover when he sees his children have other gods in their lives. And I tell you, God's not up in heaven mad this evening. He's up in heaven with tears in his eyes. He's weeping over Camp Loma de Vida. You say, Why? Because God loves you. God loves you. God gave all of himself to you. So he is broken when you only give a fraction of yourself to him. He wants it all. And the reason that we will never have a revival is because we will not consecrate our life to Christ. But notice, secondly, the reason we won't have revival is because we will not carry the cross. We will not carry the cross. Look at the next verse, verse number 27. It says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The emblem of the cross has become something that we glorify today. 
In fact, I think in many cases we worship the cross more than we worship what took place on the cross. Many of you have a cross on your necklace or a cross uh, uh, on your backpack. I think the camp's logo is a cross on a hill. We uh, use it as our, as our brand today, the cross. The cross. We have it in our churches, on the pulpit maybe, uh, on the building out front. Uh, the cross. We, uh, we uh, use it to promote Christianity. It's one of the emblems of Christianity. But I tell you, when Jesus spoke of the cross, to the people that day, the cross was not something they would have wore on their neck. It's not something they would have gotten tattooed on their arm. It's not something they would have put on a t-shirt to wear. The cross was an emblem of suffering. The emblem of the cross meant death on a cross. And when Jesus tells them that they've got to carry a cross and come after me to be my disciple, they would have known that if someone was seen carrying a cross, they weren't coming back. That was a one-way trip. That was a one-way trip. And they, they wouldn't have needed further explanation. Uh, they wouldn't have needed uh, Jesus to explain what he meant. They would have understood immediately that to carry a cross um, wasn't going to be necessarily the greatest thing in the world. They would have understood the cross as an, in, as an unruly instrument of torture, death, and humiliation. And when Jesus told them to carry the cross, honestly, it was first of all a call of complete surrender. Complete surrender. And he was saying, look, I want you to love me more than you love anything else. I want, you to love, I want your love for me to be so affectionate that everybody else in your life thinks that you have no time for them, that, that you don't really necessarily even want to be around them because you're so infatuated with me. And he says, and I want you to prove your love for me. I want you to commit your love to me by sacrifice. Because at the end of the day, a committed love is best displayed through sacrifice. Is that not how Jesus proved his love toward us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, he displayed his love for us through death on a cross. And he says, look, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want fellowship, then you come right after me and carry your cross. He's asking for total surrender. He says in Luke 9, in verse 23, If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. A great example of this is the Apostle Paul. Someone who, to the church of Corinth, told them, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus my Lord. I die daily. I die daily. He says it a little bit more clear in Galatians 2 and verse number 20 when he says, I am crucified with Christ. I've died a long time ago. But then he says, nevertheless, I live. But watch this. Not yet I, 
but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he says, look, I, the, Paul, Paul died a long time ago on the road to Damascus, and I spent three and a half years studying the scriptures, getting to know my God, and I determined right then, Saul is no more. Paul is no more. It's not me that's doing these things. It's not me that's living this life. No, no, no. There's been many times in my life where I thought about doing doing this or doing that or going back to, to this way or that way. In fact, in, in, in Romans, he says, look, the good that I want to do, I can't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. He says, look, I find myself at war between the spirit of God and the flesh. He says, constantly I'm fighting what I want to do. But he says, look, I die daily. I put myself on the altar day after day after day and say, you know what, today I'm not going to surrender to what I want to do. I'm going to surrender to what Christ wants me to do, no matter what that means. And he tells the church at Rome in chapter 12, verse number 1, I beseech you. In other words, I beg you. I, 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 I come to you on my knees. I plead with you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not transformed, or be not conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect with will of God. You, you, you want to know what priority number one in the will of God for your life is? It's for you to jump on an altar day after day after day and say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. You increase, I decrease. More of you, less of me every single day till the day I die. I just want you to direct my life. Complete surrender complete surrender. I'm a youth pastor as well as an evangelist. I find myself on the road and in hotels quite a bit. And I uh, deal with a lot of teenagers. I work with a lot of you guys. And uh, you guys have this infatuation with something that uh, I've become quite infatuated with too. It's called YouTube. Yeah. I like to watch YouTube videos. And, and once I'm on the YouTube train, ooh, there's no coming back from the YouTube train. That uh, up next section, that gets you every time. And I don't remember what I was looking at, but I was watching some video, and then it kind of led to another one. And I remember being like, all right, one more after this one. Right? Ah, that wasn't as good as I wanted it to be this one. Right? This kept going. And eventually I stumbled across, not really sure how, but I stumbled across a news article where they were interviewing someone. And I think it was labeled something like uh, really funny, ridiculous, you know, you know how YouTube videos are, right? They're all, you know, you know, super funny, ridiculous, amazingly accurate description of, you know, this group of people, you know. And I was watching, it was an interview over someone, with, with, with someone, about a group of new vegetarians. They were interviewing one of these new vegetarians. She was 28 years old. Her name was Christy Pugh. P-U-G-H, if you want to look it up and correct me if I'm wrong. One of, the one of her quotes captures the viewpoint of really the video and the group that she is in. She said this, she said, I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like sausage. I really like, veg I really like vegetarian, but I also really enjoy sausage. 
And the video went on to say she represents a growing number of people who eat vegetarian but make some exceptions. They don't eat meat unless they really like it. Well, as you can imagine, real vegetarians were quite upset with her, right? And they were going on like, that's not vegetarian, that's not who we are, what, what are you talking about? And uh, they were putting pressure on this group of people to come up with a different name for themselves, and so they did. And the video was kind of revealing what their new name is and what they'd like to be called. And their names are Flexitarians. <laughs> Flexitarians. And I was wa- as I was watching the YouTube video, I realized something. I'm a Flexitarian. Right? Like, I absolutely refuse to eat meat unless it's being served, right? I mean, yeah, that's me. I'm a flexitarian, right? I mean, yeah, everybody can be, right? In fact, Christy explains it this way. She says, I really like vegetarian food, but I'm just not 100% committed. I like vegetarian food, but I'm not just 100% committed. You know, I think a flexitarian would be a great way to describe the majority of you in this room when it comes to your Christian faith. Oh, you really like Jesus. But don't ask me to read the Bible every day. That that book's hard to read. It's hard to understand. I really like worship. I really like the songs we sang. but, But don't ask me to actually live them out. I really love Jesus. And I love Camp Loma de Vida. It's the next best place to be besides heaven. I mean, I love it to the, to, to the end of the world. But, but don't ask me to save sex till marriage. Don't ask me to give up my friends. Don't ask me to forgive that person that hurt me. Don't ask me to be a missionary. Oh, I mean, I might die. I mean, I love Jesus, but I'm just not 100% committed. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to have a relationship with me, if there's going to be revival in this country, you've got to be totally surrendered. No exceptions. No buts, no ands, no ifs about it. A total, complete surrender. But it was also a call, when he called them to carry their cross, it was also a call of continuous suffering. If they were carrying their cross, the chances are good they were headed up the road known as Via Della Rosa, which was known as the way of suffering. The way of suffering. The crucifixion was not something that the Roman government invented. It was something they perfected. They knew how to make a body or a person go to the brink of death death, and then keep them alive so that they would suffer more. The crucifixion process would not just all take place on the cross, but it would take place in the hours that were leading up to the evening where they would crucify them. They would start with something that's called scourging, where they would take a prisoner, they would strip them of their clothes, They would tie him to a rope and they would throw it over a beam in the ceiling where they could pull his body tight so his feet barely touched the floor. They would then take an instrument of destruction. 
Their favorite was known as the cat of nine tails. It was a rod that had nine leather straps attached to the end of it. Each, at the end of each of those straps was a, a, gla- a, me- a piece of glass or metal or bricks, s- something that was sharp. And they would take that cat of nine tails and they would whip the prisoner's naked body. And it was the skill of the soldier that just at the right moment, as those pieces of glass and bone would, would, would get into the skin, that soldier would then rip it away. And they would do this over and over and over again until the body would be as red as red could get. Their goal was to rip as much flesh off as possible. According to their own history books, they've discovered that the Romans would oftentimes beat prisoners up to 100 to 159 times. They then took Jesus down from scourging, brought him back to Pilate to stand before the multitude once again for his final sentencing, where they cried, crucify him. It was then customary that those that were to die on the cross would then take a crossbeam and carry it to the top of a mountain known as the Hill of Golgotha. We call it Calvary today. The place of the skull. And when the prisoner had reached the top, many of them would die of exhaustion getting up the hill. And they would take the prisoner's body, and they would take his, his wrist, and there's, there's, a, there's two bones right here, and they would, they would take a spike and drive it through his wrist into the cross. They would then stretch his arm out over the other side and do the same. That cross beam would then be hoisted up and put into a, a, a fixed pole that was stationed there permanently, and it would come down and it would lodge into place. There'd be a little platform for their feet that would just barely touch. They would cross the prisoner's legs. They would bend his knees and drive one spike through the middle. The reason they would bend the prisoner's knees is because if they were to lock his knees in an upright position, the prisoner would sink down on those nails. His lungs would collapse and fill with blood, and he would not be able to breathe, and he would die almost instantly. Again, the crucifixion process was not meant to be an instantaneous death, but rather a drawn-out, humiliating event. And so they would bend the prisoner's knees so that he'd have to pull up on those nails to suck in his air. And he'd fall back down. He'd pull up on those nails. Fall back down. Many crowds would gather. They would invite the entire city to come humiliate these criminals. Many would have whips in their hands to whip the prisoners up on that cross to inflict more pain. They would spit. They would pluck the hairs from their faces. And many times, crucifixions would last days upon weeks, even sometimes into the next month. Suffering. Something we don't experience in America. Not in America the slightest. I mean, your friends make fun of you at school because you carry a Bible, so sorry. And the door might slam in your face when you try to tell them about Jesus, so did you watch the video tonight? He's not the only guy that's ever done that. 
John Huss, as he was being burned at the stake for preaching the gospel, said, what I have proclaimed with my lips, I now seal with my life. Burned at the stake. You, you know how the Bible says, uh, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. We often think that's like a cool picture for like, you know, the suffering of like a loved one passing. No, no, no. They were actually going through fiery trials. Like people were being thrown into a furnace that night to light a sick, cruel governor's garden. Those were actual things taking place. Those are things that are actually still taking place in other countries. Pastor Larry Brown once said, I fear that a return to normal Christianity may be coming to America, and it might just be the end of Christianity. You know what he's saying? He's saying suffering is coming. Why? Because all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so if you're not suffering persecution, it may be because you're not living godly. And that might be why we haven't experienced revival. One of the reasons that I think the world looks at our culture, and I include myself in this. I know I may look really old, but I promise you I'm not. You're like, you got two kids, dude, you're old. I know, I, I've realized that, but I, I'm young at heart, all right? But one of the things that I think People look at, at us, and they say, they'll never serve God past whatever age you want to say. You know why they say that? Because we're comfort seekers, not cross bearers. They say that because at the end of the day, we're going to take the easy way. And as long as serving God is comfortable... Sign me up. Sign me up to, to, to be a counselor at camp. Sign me up to, to be on a stage and, and play a piano or, or sing. Sign me up for the fun stuff. Mission trip to Honduras. Who wants to go? Are we going to go ziplining? Mission trip to Haiti. Who wants to go? That's like an island, right? There's going to be like a beach day. No, actually, we're going to spend the entire month in an orphanage where children are disfigured, and we're going to share, them, sh share with them the love of Christ. That's an actual opportunity. If you're interested, you can talk to me afterwards. Where are those that are signing up to carry the cross of suffering? And there are some of you that God is calling to preach in this room, that God is calling to go to a mission field, and you won't go because you're scared you're going to lose your comfort. And you're scared you may get dirty. 
You say, no, please, you won't even get in the mud pit this week. You think you're going to go shower in a river? Give me a break. You say, that, that sounds really mean, preacher. No, it's honesty. And your generation needs some more of it. Look, sometimes the truth hurts. We're not ready for a revival in America because if we were, it'd be here. Because we're not ready for persecution. We're not ready for the tough roads. We're not ready to stick it out. If persecution came to our country, half of us would recant the faith instantly. Where are the teenage women like Cassie Jones, who way back in the year 1999, as two shooters began to shoot up their school and went into the library where Cassie and her friends were, were, were studying books, and in, there in Columbine, Colorado, they, 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 they pulled her out from under the table, and they, they lined her up against the wall, and they, and they went to each of her friends and said, are you a Christian? And if they said no, they... they, they they got to run out of the room. If they said yes, they put a bullet in their head. And when they came to Cassie Jones, they said, are you a Christian? She said, yes, I am. They said, spit on this book. She said, I won't do that. And they shot her in the head. If that happened at your school, God forbid, what would your answer be? It's just a book. No, my friend, it's life. It's the word of God. And as you grow familiar with it, you're not growing familiar with a history book. Like I said earlier, you're growing familiar with the lines upon your Savior, your Creator's face. Where are the Christians who will take a stand for this book? will repent of their apathy, repent of their lethargy, repent of their sleepless nights playing video game after video game after video game and sleeping in until noon to get back, I'm sorry, one, and then get back up again and play video game after video game after video game. Is that how you're going to spend your summer? Is that how you're going to spend your life? Is that how you're going to spend your life? Hey, if you do that, be my guest, but eternity is going to be one big miserable mess for you as you sit around thousands glorifying the name of Christ, casting down crowns at his feet, casting down works at his feet, and you watch men like John Huss who gave his life for Christ, and you watch men li like Stephen in the Bible who was stoned to death, who was bitten as he was stoned, who died a martyr's death, and you watch men like that, and you watch people like John the Baptist who was boiled alive, uh, I'm sorry, who, who was beheaded, and you watch people like John the Apostle, John the Beloved, who put his head on Jesus' chest, who, who laid there, who, who fellowshiped with him, who, who gave his life boiled a pot boiled in a pot uh, lived the rest of his life in exile on an island by himself self and you're going to watch him up in heaven laying next to jesus christ and you're going to look at your savior in the face and you're going to say i did nothing for you and you did so much for me look you will never get to heaven and say i wish i would have done less no chance but there's going to be thousands of people that get to heaven and say, man, I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have used my life for something that actually mattered. Your life is but a dash. 
there's probably one thing we got right in this world, Brother John. And it's that on a tombstone, we put our birth date and our death date, and we separate them by a little tiny dash. And that little tiny dash encompasses everything we do with our life. No matter how long you live, two days or 85 years, little dash. That's a proper representation of how short your life is. Because guess what? Eternity, it's forever. And we spend every little bit of this investing in this instead of forever. And Jesus says, you want some fellowship with me? You want a revival with me? It's going to require some suffering. It's going to require some surrender. We'll never have revival because we're not consecrated to Christ. We'll never have revival because we're not carrying the cross. And then quickly, we're never going to have revival because we're not willing to count the cost. And we've kind of been talking about this, but Jesus uses two illustrations here at the end of this chapter to basically get us to thank about it. God wants you to thank about it. He wants you to slow down and think. He wants you to count the cost. He uses one illustration that helps us understand that we need to understand what it's going to take to fellowship with God. He says, what man uh, intends to build a tower but doesn't sit down to think about whether he can finish it or not? He says, what's going to happen is he's going to build half a tower and everyone's going to come and mock it because it's not finished. And God says, look, before you sign up on this journey, I want you to think about whether you have what it takes to complete it. Because God's not interested in you starting the Christian life. He's interested in you finishing the Christian life. We have, a, uh, we have one monument in Yuma, Arizona. Yeah. It's called the Bridge to Nowhere. It wasn't supposed to be a monument, but now it is. It's on all the Christmas cards from our church family, and it's great. Everybody, like, Bridge to Nowhere. Here, here's our family in front of the bridge. Bridge hasn't changed. Family has, you know? Basically what it was is they thought it would be easy to connect um, a, a bridge over the river instead of going around it. And so... Uh, they built this immaculate bridge, and they have a finish to it. And they got about halfway, and they realized, we can't finish it. It's useless. There's already a road that goes around it, so why are we wasting all this money? So you know what they did? They put a sign up that said, Bridge to Nowhere. And they blew up the entrance to it so nobody could jump off anymore. Smart idea. And basically the sign says, come laugh at our failure. It doesn't say that, but that's what everybody does. Remember that stupid idea? And sadly, there's going to be many of you that make a decision tonight to follow Christ. And two years later, everyone's going to look at your life and look at that decision and say, wasn't that a stupid idea? And God says, I don't want that to happen. I'd rather you not make a decision at all if you're not going to stick to it. Let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, God's saying, look, it's okay. 
You don't want a revival? It's okay. You can have a mediocre life. I'd rather you do that than tarnish my name. And so God says, I want, you to, I want you to finish what you start, but he also says, I want, to forsake, I want you to forsake all your stuff. I want you to think about whether I'm worthy of everything. The second illustration he uses is a little bit of a strange one, just to be honest with you. But he talks about a king who's planning to go at war with another king. And this king only has 10,000 soldiers, and the king he's going to meet has 20,000 soldiers. And he says a wise king is going to put away his pride and put away his desire of conquest and say, look, I can't beat him. Let's go make peace with each other. And the illustration is you are the king with 10,000. Christ is the king with 20,000. And he's saying, look, if you really want to follow me, stop trying to do your own thing and go with your own desires and try to accumulate your stuff and just make peace with me and live this life with me. We can do so much more together. And that's evidenced by the fact that he says, so likewise, at the end of verse number, or in verse number 33, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus is saying, look, uh, you're, you're going to have to give up your ambition, your pride, your everything to follow Christ. And so I guess I just conclude tonight by asking, what is it that you have that you won't let go of? What is it that you have that is keeping you from fellowshipping with God like he wants you to? What dream is keeping you from going to a Bible college? Look, I know we talk a lot about giving up sin to follow Jesus, but I think you ought to be willing to give up anything to follow Jesus. And maybe some of you have a, have a well-intended desire to go serve our country in the military. Look, that's great. We need that. Absolutely. Praise the Lord for your heart. But I tell you, you will be miserable in battle if God is calling you to the pulpit. There may be a girl in here that has this dream of being a mother, a stay-at-home mom who takes care of her children. But God is calling you to go to a foreign field and translate some Bibles. Hey, you're going to be miserable as a mother of three if you're not doing what God wants you to do. What is it that you're holding behind your back? God's pointing at that and saying, am I worth that to you? Am I worth that to you? If you're having trouble identifying what's keeping you from relationship with God or fellowship with God, I have some questions that may help. What do you spend money on? There's a record that tells you what's most important in your life. It's your bank statement. I was at a camp and a teenager came to me afterwards and he said, Eric, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And so we went into a room and I said, what's up? He said, I have a problem. I said, me too. What's yours? He said, I'm addicted to Clash of Clans. I said, okay. I mean, there's bigger problems in the world, man. Like Clash of Clans. I have that game. It's fun. Join, join my group, right? <laughs> like, how big's your army, right? He said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I have spent a lot of money on this, on this game. I said, how much money? He said, a lot. I said, how much? $10,000. 
Look, he loves Clash of Clans. You want to know how much money I spent on Clash of Clans? What do you spend money on? Makeup? Clothes? Video games? Apple products? Movie tickets? Whatever Amazon Prime promotes to you? Whatever the sponsorship on Instagram is? When's the last time you gave a dollar to church? When's the last time you gave a dollar to someone who needed it? When's the last time... That might be too mean. What do you spend money on? Secondly, when you're hurt, where do you go for comfort? You run to a boy or a girl? They just make me feel so warm. Chances are they're the ones that hurt you. You run to your refrigerator? Hey, that's why they're called comfort food, right? Some guy hurts you. Some girl says we're over. And you jump in the lazy boy and chug down a sleeve of ho-hos, right? Comfort. Comfort. Last question, what really gets you excited? I mean, what really gets you excited? Some of you are like, like you don't know what you're going to do if the Navy SEALs don't win tomorrow. I mean, some of you are like on the brink of disaster if the Rangers lose this week. And it's like, I don't know. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how I'm going to go on with my life. put so much time into this week and <laughs> during that cabin time I've said so many verses <laughs> it's just gonna all be worthless if they don't say that this hills one I mean I just I just want them to say the Navy Seals win so I can go ah! <laughs> one more time And like my, my whole life's gonna be over if I can't get on Facebook and say, I won. <laughs> Let's just ask an honest question. What do you win? Nothing. And yet some of you are so excited to win a competition that means nothing than to go to church on Sunday and worship your God. 
I got up at 3 a.m. on Monday morning and drove two and a half hours to San Diego with a five-month-old, a three-year-old, and my wife, who's sick. We got in a line in TAS, got patted down in places they're not supposed to pat. We got on a plane, flew to Austin, Texas, because I'm a cheapskate, rented a car and drove four hours to get here at seven o'clock to get changed, to stand before you and preach on Monday night. And you say, you should have stayed home. No, I shouldn't have. I don't say that to, be, to say that, that was a waste of time. I tell you, I do that because I love preaching. I love what I get to do. And I brought my family here because I want my kids to understand this is the greatest thing in the world. And some of you are so nervous to do what God wants you to do because you're just afraid it's not going to be any fun. It's not going to excite you like, you know, the Avengers Endgame. <laughs> where you did permanent damage to your bladder to watch the whole thing. <laughs> Look, I'm serious. Some of you get so excited for the Dallas Cowboys. that you will justify and you will go to bat for on social media for, for sinful players who, who are absolute terrible people. And look, I'm not lying. The Packers have terrible people too. I'm, not, I'm telling you, I'll sit and watch a TV with a block of cheese on my head and chant, go, Pack, go, every time they throw the football. You mark it down. If the Packers won the Super Bowl this year, my whole city would know it. And not because it would be in the papers, it'd be because I would go and tell them. My whole, my whole neighborhood would understand. Eric Gutch is a Packer fan, man. And I never want my son to look at me after a Packers victory and say, Daddy, I've never seen you so excited before. Because to tell you the truth, seeing a soul saved, whew, far more thrilling. After the service, I got to lead someone to the Lord last night. It was the greatest joy I've ever had. What gets you excited? Where do you spend your money? Where do you go for comfort? What is it that keeps you from experience, experiencing a fellowship with God? Revival appears to be impossible because we won't consecrate our hearts to God, we won't carry the cross, and we won't count the cost. But aren't you thankful we serve a God of the impossible? Aren't you thankful that with God nothing shall be impossible? Hey, tonight, may we go ask the Lord with a counselor, 
Lord, do the impossible in me. Because, Lord, by nature, I am a comfort seeker, not a cross bearer. But, Lord, would you work in my heart so that I, so that I would completely surrender to you? And, God, by nature, I'm going to love every other thing in this world. But would you come and do the impossible in me so that I'd have a love for you that is unlimited like yours is for me? And God, by nature, when I'm hurt, I'm going to run to this thing and that thing. But God, would you come and do the impossible in me and get me so amped up to serve you that I'm going to charge hell with a squirt gun and it's going to be all right. God, come do the impossible tonight.